Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietrich. Sal, you fired up about tonight's program? Ed, tonight we have the story of Jack Schwab. I'm honored to have him on our show. The man found his higher purpose in life, serving the people of Sri Lanka, a people devastated by a tsunami 12 years ago. And listeners are thinking, you know, I'd love to do this kind of work, but... I have work, I have kids. Well, so does Jack Schwab, a successful local businessman in the construction industry. We'll talk about his passion for the people of Sri Lanka, the amazing efforts they've completed as such a small group and and have underway in Sri Lanka. Hear his call to action to listeners to live a life inspired by faith in service. And it's all right here on Grace and 30 tonight. Jack, my friend, welcome to the Grace and 30 show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I love having you on the show. I, I Our pre-talk, man, you had me fired up about this stuff. Look, uh, it's 2004. The tsunami devastates Sri Lanka. This is the third largest earthquake in history. It triggers quakes as far away as Alaska. You know, you're here in Northern Virginia, a successful con- construction businessman, a young family. T- tell us what you're thinking when you heard about the tsunami and how you ended up first going to Sri Lanka. It was the fall of the four uh, hurricanes in Florida that came almost back to back. That's right, yeah. And after each one, uh, a friend of mine named Scott Dahl and I said, let's go. But then, oops, I've got to travel. He's got a case he's working on. Every time, we, we didn't do it, and we felt terrible. And we finally said, next disaster, wherever it is, whatever it is, we're going, no questions asked. And here it is on the other side of the world. <laughs> True. So did you even, I mean, you, you really had no concept of what Sri Lanka was. I mean, did you even know where it was on the map? Most Americans don't, but I, uh, I I love geography and maps, so I did know where it was. And and how did you get involved? You went with your you went with your church, or how did this sort of come about? Because you know, this is uh, a big trip, and you're going to this uh, small nation that's completely been devastated. How, what were tell us how you got over there, and then what were some of the goals initially? Just when you guys decided to go over there. Well, Scott and I were going, we were going as a team, he and I, and then word did spread uh, throughout our church, and a, a number of other people wanted to come along as well. I, I explained, I'm not uh, the, the camp leader. You can come, but I don't know what you're going to see. I don't know what conditions are going to be like. You're kind of on your own. So we ended up uh, going with uh, uh, six people, and it turned out to be uh, great because uh, two were nurses. Wow. And uh, in refugee camps, uh, medical need is almost number one. So how did you get, I mean, how did you get, you just decided to go over there? Did you connect up with some organization? Or you are, you mentioned, I think you are a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Is That's that correct? correct? Mm-hmm. Did you connect up with them when you got in country? Or you guys just boarded a plane and said, you know, when we get there, we'll... We've got some supplies, and we'll start helping people. Yes, that's exactly what happened. I did have a Sri Lankan friend here, so I picked his brain clean about the details and where to go and what would be needed. And and we actually sent a container of clothes over through him uh, before we went. And But we, we went in pretty blind, but prepared for anything. Wow, and so you organized this pretty much all yourself, and so listeners are thinking, I've got to hear the rest of the story, because they're expecting, you know, how could this be successful 
I'm assuming that the fact that you were a small team and fleet, you were more fleet-footed, right? I mean, you were able to accomplish things out of the gate that some of the larger organizations couldn't accomplish. Well, of course, we had no overhead. We had no rules to follow. Yep. So when we saw a need where, obviously, the larger organizations have to get approval and write up uh, uh, criteria for what they're doing, we just were able to go ahead and do it. So some of them, they have sort of a, a whole system where they go and they, they get on the ground, they assess the situation, they're not so much making an impact right out of the gate, they're just doing a lot of initial assessment. Correct, and th that word assessment was one that drove us crazy when <laughs> we were there because uh, we we're trying to say, hey, let's just do and assess later. <laughs> so why don't you set the stage for us? I mean, you, you get there, it's only three weeks after the tsunami hit. Mm -hmm. How soon, about that? Yeah. What was it like? It had to be really a difficult scene that you walked into, correct? Well. We arrived in the capital, Colombo, which surprisingly wasn't badly hit. But once you, we drove south from there, uh, it was just mile after mile of destruction. The destruction was pretty complete. The homes aren't built very well, so it didn't take much to, to knock them over. Um, but hospitals were filled, obviously way over capacity. Many people walking around in need of bandages and, and medical care, but there just wasn't, that wasn't possible. Was there a moment where you felt like we, we can't we can't make an impact? It's just too overwhelming. You know, I had that feeling before I went. I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, "What am I doing? I'm a nobody. What right do I have to go?" But once we hit the ground, I knew it was where I was supposed to be. Yeah, this is amazing because you know you, you end up in this country. It's it's got all this turmoil. It's not that well organized to begin with, and people here would be overwhelmed. You know, in, in Northern Virginia, just getting stuck on the Beltway. It's just incredible. I mean, you. So you went there. Now you're a con you're in the construction industry. You have you have a deep craft in building homes. And when you went there, um, that was one of your interests. Is that correct? When you saw the sort of the shanties and the homes and the doctors' offices and things just literally crumbled, that was a goal of yours when you guys got over there. For sure, that's what I was expecting to do uh, with most of my time. So did that change when you first got there? Did you? kind of get waylaid it did because the the so many homes were close to the ocean in fact squatting a lot of times and the government put a moratorium on construction till they could determine what the setback was going to be off the ocean hmm. so there was no no construction at all being performed and for how long did that moratorium last well they kept moving it closer and closer over the course of the next few months and then eventually just went back to where it was originally so you ended up you're there the six of you two nurses and you're there and so you you ended up as i understand it um going into these camps right where they were essentially mm -hmm. collecting people a lot of them children because in in situations like this there are a lot of orphan children or displaced children uh, in these situations so you you ended up going into these camps and, and what did you see? You were sort of struck by the fact that these kids had really nothing to do, right? Well, no, they and they had nothing to do, and they had nothing to think about except what they had just experienced. Uh, we we happened upon a small group uh, that we spent a lot of time with over the course of a month, and the elder of the village told me, "We're so grateful you came because the kids were not sleeping uh, on their homes. Their homes were gone, but they could at least sleep on their." the home site they wouldn't do that they were too afraid and then eventually we actually got them into the ocean and they were just so grateful that through working with them we were able to overcome this tremendous fears wow so you brought supplies shoes water water barrels pots pans you know how did that impact people that were in these camps well our our 
sweet spot is really the small needs that fall through the cracks. We went to uh, one camp and noticed the kids are running around barefoot with and there's barbed wire and broken glass everywhere. Mm. So we said, would you like shoes? Of course. And so we went off and, and uh, bought shoes for everybody in the camp. It sounds like you were almost serving as some kind of a therapist for the children, in a sense, right? I mean, well, I don't have that kind of skill, but I'll tell you, uh, what not we, formally, but what we did fall into uh, because we we want to give something to the kids and we visited them. We started giving out art pads and pastels uh, with no agenda. Mm-hmm. I was amazed. I have hundreds and hundreds of drawings that these kids drew of the tsunami. And seeing what they saw, you know, through their eyes is very, uh, very humbling because they watched people drown in, right in front of them or their own parents. And so we found out this is a great tool. Yeah, we could call it art therapy, but I'm not, again, qualified to do that. But just handing out, we probably a couple thousand of those pads, uh, we think, helped the kids express a little bit what, what they had seen. And have you kept any of these? Do you have some? Absolutely. Ones? And are they on your website that people can see? One of them is right on the homepage. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I, I would, gosh, I would love to see even a, an art show of that. I mean, yeah, that, that, is, that is an incredible, incredible thing. That what, might what be a kind of a, a cool way to, to do some fundraising, you know, yes, perhaps. I, you I, know. I always wanted to put them into a book. I thought that would be a... Yeah, maybe well, pick the top 40 or 50 or something yeah. and, and tell a story with each one for each child. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be really neat. Yeah, got definitely got to get those uh, up on the, the website. I also have to comment that... Um, you know, you just did a simple thing. You had some supplies, and you gave them to the kids, and it had this transformative effect. And it's just simply because you went there, and you were with the kids, and uh, and, and you interacted with them. So, so good for you. And that actually helped to break the ice, because in the camps, they'd see many people coming and going, doing assessments, and they weren't very trusting of, of the people. So when they saw us playing with the kids, you know, they tend to break the ice. The Tamil people who I work with in the East are very, very shy by nature. So it helped to break the ice with them when they saw how much we loved the kids. So that first trip, how long were you there? A month. Okay. And and you must have you know, developed a, a love for the kids and these people that you were working with, right? Oh, absolutely. And you just wanted to go back. Yeah. How, how soon after that did you go back? Uh, about five months. Okay. And you've sort of been in a rhythm now where you've been going down once or twice a year now? A couple times a year. And this has been going on for 13 years? Yeah. yeah. Wow, good for you. Congratulations. I have people working for me over there, so the the work keeps going on. But like any business, the boss needs to check in every now and again. (laughs) So you've really built this up from six people to an ongoing foundation that is now you know really focused on helping very specific needs yes, yes. that's that's incredible you, you talked about i think maybe it was the second trip you went back you were still working in the camps with the kids and you know goodness tends to get around right and and so you're there you're you're not a native of the country people really don't know you but local authorities saw what you all were doing and i guess through some conversations realized that you were construct you had a construction company and they I, I think they authorized you or let you guys start going back to some of these areas and start rebuilding homes before anybody else. Is correct. that about right? That wow. is absolutely correct. How, how did that happen? How did that relationship happen? That's it's, it's astounding. Well, one of the camps we were working in uh, was in the town called Bataclo, which is where we're based now. And the that man you referred to was came to that camp unbeknownst to us and watched us, watched us with the kids, watched us bring supplies in. We happened to run into him that night uh, a new friend of mine invited me to a small get-together, and there he was, and that's when he said, uh, will you do this for us? The, the goal was to get the get out of the camps because the camps were oftentimes in schools, 
Mm -hmm. They can't send the kids back to school until we get them out of the uh, out of there. So the high priority was cleaning the camps out as quickly as possible. Yeah, I noticed on the website you said one of the goals is to get people back to normalcy as yeah. soon as possible. And how do you do that after a tsunami and so much destruction? But it sounds like you were able to just chip away and move forward and do that. Yes. When, when did I mean? Give me a sense for. How long did it take for the country to kind of return to some sense of normalcy? You know, it's interesting. People always say a country will never recover from this disaster. But the reality is we're, human beings are very resilient. Yep. It took several years to get back to a degree of normalcy. But at the same time, the Civil War heated back up again. Mm -hmm. There was a kind of a, a truce between the, the rebels and the government during the tsunami cleanup. And then once the cleanup was done and things were starting to move forward, the war started again. So the refugee camps filled right back up again. And about when was that? How, how long after the uh, tsunami? Oh, about a year. Wow. That's, that's yeah. a sad statement about human nature. <laughs> you, you know, Ed, what I love about this story is really folks could go over there and say, well, I, I could do this for you. I could do that for you. I, I could build houses. I could do all this. What Jack and his team did is they just went over there and really showed love. Yeah. They just started, so they said, look, this is how people need to be served. They listened to what was going. They saw these children. And how many times have we heard from our guests who have really gone on to, we saw a few kids standing around who had nothing to do. In this case, camps of children. And they said, look, this is how we can serve. And through that, people built trust in this group of small people to go in and start rebuilding their very home, schools, and businesses. And how effective that approach is in this story is just incredible. Yeah, I think most of the battle is just being there, right? Is, is that what you found out? Absolutely. And and in the third world, we don't have the regulations and the watchdogs that we have in this country. So you're able to just to do things a little bit easier. Sometimes you have to ask forgiveness after the fact, but it, it's just easier to do something in that environment than it is here in this country. And you, you know, we talk about rebuilding homes, but you rebuilt um, uh, a tailor shop, right? But you also rebuilt the local doctor's yes. uh, a clinic or home clinic, as it would be. And he went on to serve over 100 people. Is that right? Tell us a bit about that. His name is Conan, and we met him very early on, and his place was you know, he heavily damaged. We thought logically, if we help one doctor, then we're going to help all the people that he can see. And certainly doctors were in short supply. So... We, uh, we put our efforts into getting his, his clinic back up and running. Uh, we kept contact with him I, just to say hi now and again, but uh, several years later I came by to see him and his, his grounds were filled with about 100 refugees from the war. And I asked him what he was doing and he goes, I just wanna, always wanted somehow to pay you back, so I thought this is the best way I could do it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Why, why don't you tell us about, you started off the organization as Sri Lanka Help, mm -hmm. and you've kind of morphed into Service, Love, and Hope. Tell us about the, the organization, its structured size, you know, what you're doing there, and um, just give us some background on that. Well, we started uh, very early on, within a couple of days, because we started receiving donations. So we set up as a charitable 501c3 corporation. We have operated as Sri Lankan Help all these years. I have other operations or other that, that, that run through this uh, parent group, shall we call it. For instance, we have a program for helping uh, Spanish youth in this area with college tuition. We also, uh, we also take groups down for the homeless in D.C. 
Hmm. Oh, wow. Trying to teach the richer kids how the other, other half lives. So it seemed like a more universal name. And then interestingly, when we incorporated in Sri Lanka, they don't allow you to use the name, the country's name in a, in a, a, in a company. So we had to, we can't operate, we couldn't operate in Sri Lanka as Sri Lankan help. And then it just made sense to have the name the same in both countries. So we have a, a favorite guest that we've had on here named Larry Thompson, fireman locally. And he, he went to Haiti after the uh, earthquake and fell in love with some kids at a school. And now he's been down there 14, 16 times and he feeds 240 children, educates them. And the key to their success is him going down there a lot and having certain key people that he really trusts in country. There's a, there's a woman named Miss Louise Mann, who is the head of the school. And she was the only one who submitted a, a trustworthy quote for them, you know, for the school, the funding they were seeking. And he can, when he's not there, he can trust her. Mm-hmm. Do you have people like that? I mean, yes. you're down there quite often, number one. That's great. Who, do you have Describe one or two of those people that you work with closely that really make the difference. Well, the, I have a full-time uh, manager who, who uh, is salaried who, who takes care of the day-to-day operations. Mm-hmm. So he's the one I do. I do trust him. I get the financial reports regularly, and, uh, and when I go, I get the paper copies as well to verify everything. So it's a pretty... It's been it's worked pretty well that way. So how did you find him? Did you did you just kind of work alongside him and say, hey, this is the guy? I met a lot of people. He's actually the third manager I've had. Um, one died, um, but uh, he's a very smart man. Used to work for the Red Cross. So when I was looking for a new manager, I came to him. I said, do you have any ideas? And he said, I'll let you know. And he came back and said, me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, you talked about. Um, uh, what I love about your journey is how, you know, really God and your your service to these people led you to uh, opportunities through your kindness where your skills came forward. That's really what struck me at about this. And, and I want to talk about you, you all visited a prison uh, in Sri Lanka, which I can only imagine, you know, as a scene in a movie, uh, a prison in Sri Lanka where political refugees were kept. And you went there handing out sort of sanitary supplies and, and just hoping to see a smile on someone's face, which took a long time. But eventually, uh, the warden there saw what you all were doing and asked you all to drill a well, which is right up right up your alley. So tell us a bit about how that all unfolded. Well, at the end of my first trip, I happened to be reading uh, the scriptures, and I came upon Matthew 25, which says the king talks about, uh, says... Um, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. And I thought mentally, check, 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 check. It's been a good trip. Yep. And then I came upon, when I was in prison, you, you visited me. And I said, shoot. <laughs> so next time I came, and it's, it is intimidating. These are not happy places. I mean, right. no prison is, but this in the third world, it's... And we were so blessed. The, uh, the, the warden let us right in told us what he needed. He, they don't provide soap and razors, uh, laundry detergent, toothpaste, anything like that for the prisoners. So we would make up, and I did it every six months, we'd make up these little uh, care packages basically and hand them out. I shake everybody's hand, I get to hand them directly to them, shake everybody's hand and have a quick word. And then yes, after, after a while he realized that we were f- for real and he, and he asked us to dig the well. They have no water in the summertime because the well dries up, it's high ground, so it, it was a very, very deep well we had to drill. And then the, his replacement asked us to provide a cinder block making machine. They wanted to provide the blocks to 
the, the homes that were being rebuilt. So he paid the uh, prisoners to make blocks, and it, it worked very well. So you were actually starting, you actually started a business, helped start a business yeah, there, way, that yeah. is not only was helping these prisoners, but was also rebuilding the country. <laughs> yeah, it's a common theme. We talked a little while ago about proximity. You went down there, you got to know people, you were, you were with them, and then you listened to them. And, and their needs. They don't have these supplies, so you put together the packages, and you're just doing these things, and people are noticing, and you're building relationships. And yes. the deeper those relationships go, the more they, they rely on you and they ask you to do. So it's a very simple, straightforward model. I also have a reputation. They call me the white man who lives like a Sri Lankan. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's great. Because I, I just stay in a simple little room. It costs like $6 a night, and I eat the Sri Lankan food with my hands, and I don't want to drive an air-conditioned car. I take the little three-wheel taxis you might oh, see in pictures cool. of. So that also built some trust. And you've, you've expanded this, your experience to include um, uh, people here in the D.C. area. So if people want to go with you, uh, you've got some great examples. You took two uh, young men to do work on their Eagle Scout project, right? I did, and they were both great projects. One uh, built a store for a single mother with a severely mentally handicapped child. Uh, he also built a playing field for a, a girls' orphanage, so two projects in one. Wow, how, how long did that take him? Uh, two weeks. That's incredible, because you see the Eagle Scout, you know, I know this because my nephew's an Eagle Scout, but, um, you know, they have to build something, and so they'll build something at the local church, but imagine going to a place like this where that building has such significance, I and mean, what an incredible opportunity. And your daughter's been involved in this as well, yes, right? Yes, there's a, there's a wonderful facility uh, on the, on the uh, West Coast, called Pretty Pura for uh, severely mentally uh, handicapped and profoundly uh, handicapped uh, children. She worked in the nursery where some terribly, terribly deformed uh, children come, and almost all of them die at some point. So it's heartbreaking work but uh, and, and backbreaking, but very rewarding. Yeah, I, I was just telling my children about this, because, you know, here in Northern Virginia, we have everything and we want everything. And, you know, I was telling the story of Mr. Uh, Chamika, I believe his name is, the, the gentleman that you helped with the wheelchair mm -hmm. who had deformed arms and would literally, Ed, repair his own wheelchair with his feet. Wow. And he would, it would, you, you were marveled at this man's uh, efforts to repair his own wheelchair with his feet and do that. And I was telling my kids that the other day. I said, look, this, you know, be thankful for the things you have. That These people who don't will do anything just to, to survive and take care of things that they have. I mean, just just that example alone, I think, would be beneficial to anyone who would want to go with Jack and his team to to visit and work in, in Sri Lanka. So I, I heard that you've been giving out some micro loans mm -hmm. to to like helping single mothers start their yes. own businesses. Talk yes. talk about that a little bit and, and how you do that, how you structure that. One of the problems that so many single women have is not only that they're supporting the family by themselves, but they're not highly educated. So many times the groups will, will set up a store for them and then it just fails because they haven't been properly educated on how to, how to run the business and where to buy supplies. So when we set up a store, we try to have a mentor overseeing what they do and... and uh, a local mentor? Yes, okay. yes. And then check in on them periodically. At one point, I had a man who was uh, who worked for us on a motorcycle. He would just go on the uh, a route to, to check on our various operations. That was that was his job. So you finance those loans from your your nonprofit, right? Yes. You talked about um, you and your friend always sort of saying, "Hey, we we want to do this. We'll go the next time. We'll go the next time." But take us back. I mean, what really brought you to this point in in your faith in your life that you 
uh, have this compelling urge to, to help people, a few things that you're sort of grounded in? Well, I do love to serve. Yeah, uh, it's obvious. And it's, it's self, totally selfish because it makes me feel good. I don't know if that's a proper motivation. but It's yeah, uh, a great motivation. But uh, So, of course, in a place like Sri Lanka, it's service all day, every day. Uh, my friend and I would come back to our room exhausted, covered in dirt, and hardly able to walk, and yet we always gave each other a high five because that's kind of the way we wanted it to be, work until we drop. And you're you're a traveler, too. We were asking you before the, the program here that you just easily can get on a plane and travel 36 hours, it, unlike it, most people. I didn't ever expect that would be my makeup, but yes, the travel has been very easy. I have to ask, what what do you want people to know about the, the people of Sri Lanka? I mean, are there any misconceptions when you're talking about what you do to, to Americans, people here locally? Is there something that you'd like to correct in the way we view these people? Well, I think Americans tend to think everybody else is different. And the reality is, when you get to know anybody anywhere in the world, they're really the same. I mean, yep. they have the same goals. They want love. They want to care for their children. They want a little bit of security. They want to eat. And the uh, better you get to know somebody, the, more, the, the easier it is to love them. And that's the real key. Just get to know people. Talk to them. And, uh, and you'll find out, wow, this, this, they're one of us. Yeah, I think we're trying to, through this program, encourage people to do that. There's a lot of division in our country right now. You know, the alt-left and the alt-right and, and these sort of conflicts. And we have to simply cross these boundaries and get to know one another. And, and that it works wonders. Yeah, take a minute. Tell us about some things you've got coming up over the next year. You know, you're planning or would like to plan as this sort of sort of a segue into how people can get involved with the organization. But what are a couple of things that are on your uh, agenda or goals that you all have uh, at Service Love Hope uh, for Sri Lanka over the next, let's say, 24 months or so? Well, we started an English school earlier this year, which took a couple of years to get up and running uh, with the goal of uh, helping the poorest of the poor get ahead in school and in employment. Um, educational opportunities are very limited. You have to take exams, and if you don't pass the exam, you're done with school, and you have no chance for a you know, good future. And if you don't speak English, the best job you're gonna get is, is a, a labor type of uh, employment. So we're trying to give a heads up to the, these poor kids. It, it's a free school trying to get, help them so they can pass their English exams, but even if they don't, at least so they can have some English and communicate with the outside world when they're, when they're adults. That's how they can at least get a, a reasonable job to support their families. We, uh, we also uh, uh, have a plan, which we had to put on hold for a while, called King Benjamin's House for Homeless. Uh, I want us to do that in Colombo, the capital. Uh, basically a place where the homeless can come in the middle of the day, get a snack, take a shower if they want, uh, watch television, and then just move on. Just a little respite spot for them. So that's one of the goals we have when we're there, uh, when we're there full time. When we were talking, you, you, you said, you know, one of your sort of uh, dreams would be that, you know, you, you know, when you retire, you and your wife could move there and do this full time. Yes. Essentially, this is, your, this is your higher purpose. This is your mission now in life after... Uh, you know, building so many buildings here in Northern Virginia is to go there and serve. So we're running really late. Can you give us a quick call to action challenge, maybe over 30 seconds, our audience to do something? I think it's easy. Just do it. Don't wait. Don't think about it. When you see a homeless guy, give him a, give him a buck. Don't think about it, whether he deserves it or, or not. Or just simply say hi. Yeah. When you have an opportunity to serve, take it now, because we always say later, and later never comes.
Awesome. I love it. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. We love what Service Love Hope Incorporated is doing to help the people of Sri Lanka, the people here in the D.C. area, and stand for a light for other businessmen to follow, really. If listeners want to find out more about Service Love Hope, please visit their website at servicelovehope.org. That's all one word, servicelovehope.org. And contact Jack Schwab. A replay of this show can be found at thegraceand30.com and wera.fm websites 24 hours after tonight. The show's also going to re-air this Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m. Ed, talk us out of this one, man. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace. Grace.